I began class by, did you, could you hear that? I began class by showing slides of self-portraits by well-known artists. We viewed street art, surmising artists' intent. And we looked at art with social messages, analyzing the correlation between font and word meaning. Students took turns introducing themselves with patterned, colored, and shaped paper, sharing why their selections represented them. We began the day's project. Students gathered scissors and multicolored fabrics and glue to create symbolic self-portraits. Once work was well underway, I realized one of my pairs of scissors was missing. I recounted. I recounted again. Scissors definitely missing. And my heart dropped. I began to sweat. I informed administration. Immediately all the doors were locked. Everyone sat. No one was allowed to stand or leave the room, not even to go to the bathroom. 45 minutes later, staff retrieved a pair of scissors hidden under a box of tissues. A young man, feeling disrespected and fearful, had hidden the scissors to be retrieved later. This is what it is like to teach in an incarcerated setting. All tools must be accounted for at all times because any tool can be transformed into a weapon. I'm reflecting on my experiences of being a teaching artist for the Department of Youth Services, working with youth that are 15 to 22 years of age, who are serving sentences in the Massachusetts court system and living in secure treatment residences. From what students have shared and my observations, I hope to provide a small window into this environment. I would like to convey the feeling of, give you a visceral sense of being on site. But I have concerns. How do I provide a detailed description without being salacious, much as I just did? I remind us of our first Unitarian Universalist principle about the worth and dignity of all beings. We do our work here at First Parish cultural sensitivity, anti-racism training, we learn to talk about difference without separating into us and them. So let's do our best to honor the humanity of these students. I will also speak about mercy, defined in the dictionary as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. First, each of us take a moment to remember when you've made a mistake. Have you ever broken a law, driven after too many drinks, neglected to declare something on your taxes? Have you ever exploded in anger, caused someone pain, cheated on a test? Let's think for a moment. Were there repercussions for your mistake? Were you punished? If so, 
How did it feel? What do we learn from our mistakes, from punishment? As Elliot Curie states in his book, Crime and Punishment in America, we imprison our population at a rate of six to ten times higher than that of other advanced societies. And we rely far more on our penal system to maintain social order, enforce the rules of our common social life, than other industrial nations do. As a society, we have a difficult job to do, to provide community safety while providing a system that will reduce prospects for future future criminal behavior. When dealing with young offenders, we must also take into consideration immaturity while holding youth accountable for their crimes. In juvenile justice, there is some good news the rate of youth committed to juvenile facilities after adjudication of delinquency is falling. In Massachusetts, the Department of Youth Services is trying not to remove youth from their communities as it is disruptive. Some DYS clients and their families remain at home and receive services. However, there are currently hundreds of youth in DYS residences. Reasons for their incarceration vary. Examples are severity of crime, a home environment that does not support legal behavior, concern about gang affiliation, perceived need for and potential for rehabilitation. Although DYS youth in many ways are like all adolescents, they are disproportionately challenged with learning disabilities such as dyslexia, attention deficit, and hyperactivity disorder. Often, they have multiple adverse childhood experiences, such as physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. The numbers are staggering. Physical or emotional neglect, household mental illness, exposure to abuse or domestic violence, an incarcerated relative, household substance abuse, and the experience of separation or divorce. As I read this list, the faces of my students march through my mind's eye. The more ACEs, the greater risk for mental illness, chronic disease, being a victim of violence, and committing violence. DYS has policies in place to respect youth confidentiality, in part to protect developing adolescents from being defined by their transgressions. Most often, I am not told about the specifics about a student's crime, which feels like a luxury to be allowed to interact with a person without bias. Sometimes I'm alerted for safety reasons, and I have felt fear. Dependent on the efficacy of DYS personnel. To work with this population, I am required to follow strict protocols designed to protect everyone's safety, and I must always be alert and careful. The following is a description of what it takes to enter a building. 
I pack all my supplies in Ziploc bags, labeled with the item and the number, the quantity. When I arrive, I'm buzzed into a locked vestibule. Then I'm brought into a second locked space. It's here that I can lock my belongings, I have to lock my belongings, such as keys and phone, into a locker. Sometimes at this point I go through a metal detector. The security goes through my supplies, and then I'm accompanied through another series of locked spaces to get to the classroom. Hearing the sounds of the metal doors locking you in takes some getting used to. When I join students for lunch, I line up with them in arms width apart, hands out of pockets. One direct care staff person walks at the beginning of the line, walks down the hall facing backwards. One direct care staff walks at the end of the line looking forward, two sets of eyes at all times. Staff radios to central security to tell them how many people are moving and where. Doors unlock and lock one at a time as we progress. If there are conflicts between student groups and they have to pass by one another, one group lines up with their faces against the wall while the other group passes. Participating in these lineups gives me a small taste of what it must feel like for my students to be, in their words, locked up. There are many tough things about this environment. Youth are often angry, depressed, in culture shock. The lights are on 24-7. They're checked every two minutes throughout the night. I don't think they sleep well. No physical touch is allowed. No love relationships. They can't talk about the reason they're there. They're learning appropriate boundaries, healthy boundaries, but also they don't want kids learning bad things from each other. They're required to, to attend a school or an educational activity Monday through Friday, 9 to 2. They're often required to wear uniforms, baggy clothes they hate. Bandanas are banned because of gang affiliation. They can't express their personality or identity through their clothing. They have to eat what's provided, and they miss junk food. Nutritional food is abundant, but so is weight gain, because so many of them come from food scarcity. They fear for their friends and family's safety while they're in. They live with violence in their neighborhoods, and they know it doesn't stop when they go away. They miss everything good that happens in normal life. Birthdays, holidays, hanging out with friends. But there are also many positives. DYS treatment centers, they value positive youth development. It is primary, it's a primary value to their mission. Amazing work is done with clinicians in both individual and group therapy. Youth receive much-needed medical care and dental care. They are supported through detoxing and 12 steps. There are Girl Scout and Boy Scout troops, horticultural programs, and grannies. It's a group of gray-haired women who come in and do craft projects. They told me, you could be a granny, you could be a granny. 
Artists in residence offer drumming, singing, theater, and hip-hop dancing. I design curriculum following national arts standards and create activities to develop skills needed by this population, such as listening, reflection, communication, and collaboration. Generally, we work with textiles because fabric is very forgiving. You can make mistakes, tear it out, reattach, when we work with fabric, I tell my students, we are practicing forgiveness symbolically. For example, I worked with seven young women at the Faye A. Rodenberg Treatment Center in Westboro. We looked at art, explored identities, made symbolic self-portraits. We got special permission to back these self-portraits with fabric and stuff them, making pillows that they were allowed to put on their beds. This was a treat because they are allowed very few personal items in their room. We talked about what they learned in treatment, what legacy did they want to leave behind to inspire those coming next. We collaboratively created a fabric wall mural of a woman to admire. For preparation research, their teacher and I provided names of athletes and politicians, women who broke barriers the kind of women I admire. The students added their own choices. Mary J. Blige, Betty Boop, Marilyn Monroe. This was eye-opening to me to understand what they admired in a woman. They admired Mary J. Blige because she was successful in the music scene Unconcerned that at the time she was being investigated for having organized a high-priced ticket fundraising concert with her boyfriend, and they hadn't distributed any of the funds. They admired Betty Boop because she so successfully used her sexuality to manipulate men to do what she wanted. And Marilyn Monroe, they admired her beauty and her fame. They didn't seem to see her per premature death from drugs and alcohol as tragic. I don't think they think they're going to live long. I, w I was concerned <laughs> with what DYS would say if one of these three choices received the most votes to be featured on a mural to be hung in the residence. In the end, with both students and staff voting, Malala, the Pakistani teenager advocate for girls' education, won. We gridded a photograph of Malala. Each square we reproduced on a larger scale, quilting those, sewing those squares together and creating a new image of Malala that we quilted. Again, this was really special because we were allowed to use pins and needles all counted and returned to me, thankfully. Although I don't know students' crimes, I often learn about their lives while teaching. In this class, one of the students was a runaway. Her portrait was made with cheetah fabric because she, like cheetahs, was a fast runner. She was pregnant, gave birth, spent two weeks with her baby, and then her mother took the baby back to Ohio where she was from. 
She had months more on her sentence to go and wouldn't be seeing her daughter until she got out. I had a student known on the outside as a fighter. She told me that her younger siblings suffered from her being locked up. One had had his cell phone stolen, and she said, that would have never happened if I was out. She told me about how she fought against her incarceration and treatment, refusing to change for nine months. Then, possibly because the student-teacher ratio is one to three, and she was required to go to school, she discovered she was good at academics. She was transformed, enjoyed school, worked hard, was excelling. It is easy to wonder, what would she have been like if she had grown up in an environment with less violence? In the boys' residence I described earlier with the incident with the hidden scissors, I was working with a group who were all new to each other. A number of youth were testing limits, throwing their weight around, trying to establish a pecking order. The oldest, tallest young man exuded a powerful negativity, creating a tense environment that kept others from participating in projects. On my last day, I brought the fixings to make cupcakes from scratch, including homemade frosting and candies to decorate them. He expressed great disdain for this project, freezing everyone in the room. The cook, who trucked no guff, read the group the riot act. You get yourselves into that kitchen. Eventually, three boys joined me, and we had so much fun cooking together. When it came time to consume the cupcakes, a staff person told the group, only those that helped may have one. I asked to present a different point of view. Cooking was fun. It felt like a gift to me. I wanted to give back that joy. I believe we should all be forgiven for our mistakes. I forgive those that didn't participate. We are a group, a team. When we have something good, we should share and share alike. I want everyone to have a cupcake. The atmosphere changed in an instant. When the powerful youth took his cupcake, I watched his body language and demeanor soften. His posture relaxed. He quieted. And after a time, he said something nice to the kid next to him. And he said thank you for the cupcake. That same day, I stayed on after cupcakes to repair students' clothes. While in DYS, they receive a $200 yearly allowance. They're told where they may shop, what they may buy. So they have few clothes. And when they rip their PJs or their favorite basketball shirt, they really appreciate my fixing them. Unbeknownst to me, this was the afternoon when everyone was gathering in a circle to give and receive feedback and say goodbye to two youth who were leaving. 
You're the smartest out of all of us, one young man said to another. You can make something of yourself. Don't come back. One of the young men leaving, who rarely spoke, offered a quiet, sincere thanks to the staff for keeping him on a 12-step path. His peers told him, You have a family who cares about you. That is special. Stop hanging around the corner store. Stay home with your family. When moments like these take place, it is all the more amazing and monumental considering these students are in the midst of a personal crisis and facing intractable social problems. In doing social justice work, I have thought, and I imagine you have too, this work feels like ministry. But as our poet, Komenyaka, says about guardian angels, we can't be everywhere at once. There are times when we feel overwhelmed with the depth and complexity of problems. Needs feel endless. We get exhausted. We need to take time to honor our experience, to self-reflect, to recognize our feelings, and to recharge. We work with vulnerable people. In addition to being perpetrators, my students are young, victimized, in crisis. In my reflection, I ask myself, am I listening, truly hearing, meeting another person where they're at? Am I identifying with these kids? Is it about me or is it about them? Do I have appropriate boundaries? Am I being merciful? Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, an American lawyer who represents people on death row and the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, writes, Mercy is just when it is rooted in hopefulness and freely given. Mercy is most empowering, liberating, transformative when it is directed at the undeserving, the people who haven't earned it, who haven't even sought it, are the most meaningful recipients of our compassion. Stevenson writes about how we are all broken by something. We all have hurt someone, and we have all been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. There are ways that I have been harmed, and I'm sure I have harmed others. I would like to forgive those who have harmed me, but I am not capable of showing them mercy. I am broken, and I don't feel good about that. Working with DYS youth, I freely give mercy to people who have harmed others, though they may seem undeserving. And it is not lost on me that some of my students have harmed others 
the same way that I have been harmed. But I treat DYS youth with dignity and respect, regardless of their past, of their mistakes. This is where I'm capable of being merciful, teaching these students. Through reflection, I realize practicing mercy in this environment with these kids somehow has allowed me to forgive myself, to feel mercy for my brokenness. We in this room are often lucky, given talents, able to spend time and effort developing skills. Our privileges prepare us to seize opportunities to work in social justice, opportunities to practice mercy. We use discernment in our efforts, in directing our efforts, where, when, to whom we offer mercy. I ask us to also think about who is giving mercy to whom. Because this is not a one-way charity. Us giving to them, it is at minimum an equal exchange. In the practice of showing mercy to others, we are showing mercy to ourselves as well. We forgive our mistakes. We heal our brokenness. As Yusef Komanyaka says in his poem, the river stones are listening, but all we can know is, mercy, please, rock me. And I add, mercy, please, rock us. <laughs>